This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. I am reading the revised and expanded edition dedicated to P.T. Bauer, Ford by Gary North. Chapter 14, The Prophetic Message. Most serious is the unjust division of the earth's food and resources. Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, page 18. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. Isaiah 65:13-16. The Old Testament prophets are often used by socialists to justify their status policies. After all, the prophets were against the oppression of the poor, so are we, they say. On the surface, this might seem convincing. The prophets were often at cross-purposes with the rich people and warned continually against the dangers of covetousness and materialism. They spoke out against the very real oppression and victimization of the poor and told the people that such practices would result in the judgment of God. Since there are similar elements in the ravings of the socialist, their identification of themselves with the prophets might appear to be valid. But as we shall see in this chapter, the difference between the biblical prophets and the biblical socialist is indeed vast, and as Sider says in another context, the chasm widens every year. The prophetic function was one of, the restate, one of restating the law of God and applying it to the contemporary situation. The prophets served as messengers of the covenantal law order to Israel's theocracy, demanding a return to the principles of the social structure, personal behavior, and worship outlined in the books of Moses. They were, as E.J. Young said, guardians of the theocracy. The prophets were to build upon the foundation of the Mosaic law and to expound that law unto the nation. They would thus be the preservers and defenders of the principles upon which the theocracy had been founded by God. Meredith Klein has rightly characterized the prophets as prosecuting attorneys, messengers from God sent to remind God's vassals of their covenantal obligations and warning the people of the consequences of disobedience. The mission of the Old Testament prophets, those messengers of Yahweh, to enforce the covenant mediated to Israel through Moses, is surely to be understood within the judicial framework of the covenant lawsuit. The prophets, therefore, took their stand firmly in terms of biblical law. They did not go beyond it, but simply applied it to the problems of the society and commanded the people to repent of their sins and return to the way of obedience under the law of God. Everything they said was in complete accordance with the law. This means that while they were very concerned over the oppression of the poor 
Incidentally, that was not their only concern. They never advocated statist policies to remedy the situation. You will never read of an Old Testament prophet calling for rent controls, minimum wage laws, or guaranteed jobs. They never demanded that the government print more money or expand credit. They did not plead for foreign aid, national health care, or restriction of profits. They did not try to institutionalize envy or legalize theft. Instead, they worked to reestablish the law of God in every area. This is the fundamental difference between the prophets and the socialist. While they both speak about the poor, their content, methodology, and goals are completely at odds. This could be amply demonstrated by a thorough survey of all the prophetic literature, but that would itself constitute an entire book. So we will narrow our field of inquiry to one prophet who, above all others, seems to be the socialist favorite. This is the prophet Amos. If there was a single man in all of Scripture who spoke out against the sins of oppressions and economic injustice, it was Amos. For this reason, socialists seize upon his little book to justify statist remedies of every kind. Yet, as we shall see, with not one whit of actual support from the prophet. Amos began his ministry around the middle of the 8th century B.C., sent by God from the southern kingdom of Judah, where he had been a shepherd and a farmer, he went to the northern kingdom of Israel to warn them of God's approaching judgment. Israel at this time was in a period of great wealth and prosperity, but it was also in the stage of covenantal forgetfulness spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 11 through 20. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and my strength of my hand have made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you that you shall utterly perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. This is exactly what happened in the days of Amos. The Israel of the 8th century had forgotten God as the source of wealth. As a result, both church and state were corrupt, the rich were oppressing the poor, the courts were controlled by bribes, the political leaders were emphasizing military might over godliness as a means of security. Society had become so perverse that the people could no longer distinguish between good and evil. Amos came to them with a message of the abiding authority of God's law. 
his judgment upon the disobedient and the urgent need for repentance. After getting their attention by thundering against the sins of the surrounding nations, 1, 3 through 2, verse 5, a fact that shows the law's validity outside the theocratic kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Amos then turned his guns toward Israel and dealt immediately with its sins in the area of economics. <coughs> Righteous men were being condemned because their wealthier enemies had bribed judges and poor men were sold into slavery over trifles. 2 verse 6. Instead of obeying the laws commanding mercy on poor brethren, Leviticus 25, 25-28, the rich men of Israel were trampling them into the dust. Gross immorality, perhaps even ceremonial prostitution, was taking place. 2 verse 7. In violation of the laws on debt, Deuteronomy 24, 10-13, <coughs> the poor man's collateral was withheld from him, and all the while the people were claiming to be devout and pious men, daring even to display the profits of their sins in the house of worship. 2 verse 8. <coughs> their response to those who brought God's word was to attempt to corrupt them, and where that failed, to silence them. 2 verse 12. Amos included in his denunciation the wealthy women of Israel, calling them cows of Bashan for 1 through 3. <coughs> Bashan was a wealthy, was a well-watered, fertile region, and the cattle of Bashan were, understandably, quite fat, which is just Amos's point about these women. He accused them of oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. This charge was not because they had actually done anything personally against the poor, for they probably rarely ever came in contact with the poor people at all. <coughs> the basis for the charge was their expensive demands on their husbands. Their self-indulgence crushed those who were below them. How is this possible? The socialist myth that wealth per se is a cause of poverty is not supported here. There are several possible ways that their affluent lifestyle could have caused oppression. Since their poor were ignored in Israel... The luxuries of these women were probably brought at the, bought at the expense of the tithe, zero interest loans, gleaning, and the like. <coughs> their weak husbands were unable to provide for the needy because their wives' greed made it impossible to obey God's law in these areas. In addition, they were forcing men into slavery unnecessarily at the expense of in the interest of making a quick shekel rather than being merciful. Perhaps they took a poor man's tools of production as collateral in violation of God's law. Deuteronomy 24.6 They probably charged interest on charity loans as well. There are many possibilities of, of making short-term financial gains by defying God's law and oppressing the poor. In our day, we have devised methods that are even more sophisticated. One way middle-class Americans oppress the poor through their affluent lifestyles is in their methods of payment. When the average man wants a new stereo car or refrigerator, what does he do? <coughs> does he go out and pay for the item with the fruits of his labor? Not on your MasterCard. 
He buys it on credit, that is, debt. This is covetousness, and covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5. The economic result of this widespread practice is inflation because the bank credit is made possible through the absolutely unbiblical practice of fractional reserve banking. The banks lend out many more times what they actually hold in reserves. With a blip on the computer, poof, brand new money. As this newly created money is injected into the market, the supply and demand schedule receives false data and prices begin to rise. These higher prices are uncomfortable but affordable to middle class and upper middle class debtors. But those who are poor cannot buy at the inflated prices caused by their neighbor's covetousness. We can blame the government's Federal Reserve System for allowing this ungodly practice and also the banks for making money from what is essentially theft. But the government wouldn't allow it if we didn't want it. For example, if the government provided free dinners of lice and maggots to middle-class Americans, there would be no takers, <coughs> because we don't want to eat that stuff. Any government service would fold if no one accepted it. But because of our covetousness, we want credit expansion, so the government provides it. Thus we allow amidst our financial luxuries, thus we wallow amidst our financial luxuries, contentedly oblivious to the fact that we have stolen from our neighbors and crushed the poor. The prophetic rebuke to the fat cows of Israel is quite applicable to us today. God judged them for their oppressive covetousness, and he will judge us too. The fractional reserve banking system can work against any group depending on which group succeeds in gaining access to the newly created money first. For example, if the federal government runs a massive deficit, if, a little humor there, and the Federal Reserve Board steps in and buys a portion of the government's bonds for creating fiat, mo fiat money, the government will spend the newly created money in subsidizing its patrons. If this should be welfare recipients or Social Security pensioners, then these groups can benefit temporarily, at least until inflation destroys the value of the currency, not to mention the social order. Those hard-pressed middle-class people who are on the tight budgets may not choose or be able to indebt themselves. Thus, they see their savings go down the inflationary drain, while the poor who have no savings maintain their living standards by means of their ready access to indexed welfare payments. They get the fiat money first, spend it before it depreciates, and leave the middle-class businessmen and families holding the bag. The bag being a savings account, a pension or a pension program, or an annuity, or cash value life insurance savings full of worthless paper money. Under fractional reserve banking, which is universal today, it pays to be the favored group which gets access to the fiat money first because its purchasing power deteriorates over time. We can expect class war eventually, such as Germany experienced in the years of mass inflation, 1921-23. to 23. Everyone wants to be the favored person in the race against price inflation, which is in turn caused by monetary inflation. Thus, by looking at the short run and voting for a debt-based monetary system, 
Today's middle-class voter is sealing the doom of the social order which has permitted the economic benefits to flow to the middle class, a social order based on voluntary exchange, contracts, social peace, and honest money. Ignorance of economics, when coupled with envy and motivated by a false sense of guilt, can produce a devastating social crisis. <clears throat> Amos also attacked these people for their empty religion. 4, 4, and 5, and chapter 5, 4 through 7. This, while it is commonly held that religion is man's attempt to approach God, this is not true. No one seeks after God, Romans 3.11. And Paul tells us that the real purpose of much of man's religious activity is to cover his flight from the true God, Romans 1.18-25. This was the case with Israel. The Israelites were using their worship to try to escape from God and the demands of His law. They were tossing worthless scraps of religiosity to God when what He demanded was justice. <clears throat> the oppressive men of Israel had become experts in certain externals of religion, much like the heroin smuggler who is scrupulous in his observance of traffic laws. But God was not fooled. With all their religion, they were still trampling on the poor, extorting bribes from them, not giving them justice in the courts, and living off the income from their thefts. 5, 11, and 12. Men who opposed these practices were silenced when they spoke out, and so many did not openly show their disapproval. 5, 10, and 13. The pious actions of these oppressors, festivals, assemblies, offerings, and hymns, were an abomination to God, and he expressed his complete disgust for them. I hate, I reject, I will not even look, take away, I will not even listen. 5.21-23 <clears throat> What God wants is not our sacrifices, but our obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, <coughs> Isaiah 1, 11 to 20. <clears throat> so, so Amos demanded, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, 524. But Israel's worship was not only hypocritical, it was also syncretistic mixed with heathenism, 525 to 27. The people who had, had a history of apostasy, even during the 40 years wandering, they had continually fallen into idolatry, and their worship of the true God had been mixed with falsehood. Apparently, Israel had actually carried heathen shrines with them throughout the journey, and after all these years, they had not changed. Their sacrifices were not genuine sacrifices at all. God can tell the difference between true worship and our baptized secularism. We can't take rich Christians in an age of hunger, bind it in leather, and call it Christian economics. Nor can we sprinkle holy water on our ungodly at contempt for the poor and afflicted, refusing to give needed help and call it Christian stewardship. Both are lawless. Amos went on to denounce the men of Israel for their godless trust in the mountain of Samaria, 6 verse 1. They were complacent in their apostasy because of their supposedly impregnable fortress there, and it was strong, 
when the Assyrians invaded the siege lasted three years. True national security can only come from the gracious hand of God. It is a blessing he grants in response to national obedience. Deuteronomy 28 verse 7. Disregarding their accountability to God, Israel put off the day of calamity. 6 verse 3. Arrogant in their deistic belief that God is not concerned with economics, presumptuously assuming that the Lord will not do good or evil. Zephaniah 1 verse 12. The court, the seat of justice, had instead become a place of violence and oppression. 6 verse 3. The rulers saw this as an accumulation of power, but in reality it sealed their doom. God had seen. In his final list of Israel's crimes, 8, 4 through 6, Amos again spoke of oppression of the poor. The businessmen of Israel chafed and fretted over the Sabbath laws. They wanted to get back to work, but their work was lawless. They were cheating customers by falsifying their measures. They were also inflating the money supply by debasing their currency. Their whole goal in business activity was to enslave others and bring men under their control. Remember, God's laws were structured compassionately. Slavery was a merciful means of enabling a poor debtor to get back on his feet. And even then, slavery was a last resort. God commanded the wealthy to restrain their demands over those who are helpless, to refrain from squeezing the last dime out of the needy. But many businessmen in Israel refused to listen. The whole of their economic activity is calculated to trample on those below them. For all these things, Amos pronounced judgment. Israel would be destroyed by Assyria and taken into captivity. None would escape. Chapter 2, 13 through 16, 4, 2 and 3, 9, 1 through 4. And only a tiny remnant would survive. 3 verse 12 and 5 verse 3. Moreover, since they had continually rejected God's word, he would send them a Bible famine. God's word would be withdrawn. And people would be unable to hear the saving message of God's revelation. 8, 11 through 13. The message of Amos had a great deal to do with economic transgressions of God's law. The Israelites were not merely guilty of failing to have morning devotions. Indeed, their religion was very devotional. Amos speaks powerfully to us today. We cannot take refuge from the demands of God's law. Ironically, in the final announcement of judgment, 9 verse 1, The Lord appears beside the altar in the very place Israel was seeking to hide from him. We can never hide from God. We cannot make up our own kind of God, a God who will be so comfortably spiritual that we can get away with any kind of crafty economic oppression we like. God is who he says he is. If we flout his laws while claiming to be his loyal people, we will only incur greater judgment. Israel rejected God's word through Amos, and Israel was soon destroyed. If we continue in our faithlessness, uncharitable religion, we will be destroyed as well. But Amos never appealed to socialism or statism for the answers. 
He never said that it was wrong to make a profit or unjust to have possessions. The wrong in these things was the fact that they had been obtained by violating the specifics in God's law. <clears throat> he did not try to incite envy by comparing the incomes of rich and poor and then assuming that the wealth of the rich was unjust. He named their sins, extortion, partiality in court, falsifying weights and measures, debasing the currency, disobedience to the poor laws, false advertising, fornication, religious syncretism, hypocrisy, and so on. He did not say that prophets were unjust simply because they were high. He did not ask that foreign aid be sent to those heathen nations that were about to become impoverished through God's judgment of their, on their ungodliness. And most emphatically, he did not request state intervention into the market. In all of his condemnation of Israel's sins, he never lost sight of God's law. He represented the law symbolically as a plumb line, 7, 6 through 9, the standard of measurement in terms of which the nation was to be judged, Isaiah 28:17. For Amos, the standard of judgment was not himself or the feelings of the poor, or the theories of either popular or dissident economist. He knew that sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 4. Ronald Sider and others professed to be reviving the message of the prophets in calling for compassion on the poor. But the difference on this point is crucial. The modern socialist prophets have rejected the plumb line, the yardstick of Scripture. While Sider's plea for justice is commendable, his standard for justice is in fact lawless. He does not, with the biblical prophets, demand a return to the biblical laws which mandate personal care for the poor. Instead, he demands statist intervention, a socialistic concept which the Bible opposes completely. He also advocates majority vote theft, thinking that the poor will be helped by plundering the rich. But God's blessings do not come from compounding crimes. That can only bring swifter destruction for both rich and poor. Amos wanted justice, but he defined it as obedience to God's law. He wanted the hungry to be fed, but he saw that this would come about solely through a return to God's word law. And he held out the hope that this, was, that this will someday come to pass. If men will obey God's laws, he will bless them in every way. And one of those blessings, which is impossible in a socialist state, will be increased productivity. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Amos 9.13 when godly business activity is left unhampered and men devote themselves to glorifying God through developing the earth's productive potential, obeying his laws and caring for the needy, remembering that God gives the power to get wealth, he will open the windows of heaven for them, causing the earth to yield its fruit in astonishing abundance. Amos' prophecy of productivity will come true. 
but only when our nation returns to to his God and the laws of Scripture. And by distorting the message of the prophets, Ronald Sider is only postponing the day of abundance. He is actually helping to bring about another prophecy of Amos instead. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.